In the criminal justice system, the people are represented by two separate yet equally important groups, the police who investigate crime and the district attorneys who prosecute the offenders. These are their stories. Here we are on a, on a Sunday evening because I'm expected in Los Angeles on Monday. Mm-hmm. Now, I have to be very careful with what I say. When By the time this podcast comes out, I will have served my duty. But uh, there is the Courtney Love libel trial happening in Los Angeles. Uh, and it began last week with testimony from a number of people. And I have been asked to provide some additional testimony on Tuesday morning. So like I said, by the time this is posted, I will have finished doing what I'm supposed to do. Are you going to live tweet it like you live tweeted the Golden Globes, you big girl? No, no, I'm not going to do anything like that. Uh, again, I am, I'm, I'm there at the request of the court, so I, I'm, I'm going to be very careful about what I do and what I say. You will report back to us next week, however. I will report back um, because after then, everything that I will have said and uh, will have will be a matter of public record. And uh, the trial should wrap up uh, by Friday. The views expressed on Geeks and Beats are those of the participants alone and not the criminal justice system. Sorry to be cryptic about it, but, I mean, this is the right thing to do. Here we go. Here we go. From the headquarters of Geeks and Beats magazine, simulcast on shortwave radio and Citizens Band 14, this is the world's most popular podcast with Alan Cross and Michael Hainsworth, featuring musical guest Sting. How much money can a mega hit make? I guess it all depends on whether or not you're playing the saxophone. The best driving song ever. We'll reluctantly run down the list and throw in the worst driving song for good measure. Will you genuflect at the altar of Kanye West? He may have to because there's now a church in his name. Waking up five miles high, NASA's list of tracks used to rouse astronauts from their weightless slumbers was largely thanks to a Canadian. A booth babes, not the money magnets that you'd expect, and we'll tell you why scantily clad women are a dying breed of trade shows. Sad. <laughs> and now... Alan Cross and Michael Hainsworth. I was blown away by how much you can make on music you made 30 years ago. A Journal of MusicalThings.com reporting American Pie by Don McLean pulls in what, more than 320000 bucks a year? I think my favorite stat in that whole article was the fact that Sting was making $1,200 a day from Roxanne. Was it Roxanne? Every breath you take. Every breath you take. No, $2,100 a day, $800,000 from one song. So this, I don't, this probably doesn't apply anymore because of the way the music industry has changed. But before the digital era, if you could hit, write one, just one giant hit song... You'd be set forever. So, like Don McLean's American Pie, $322,000 a year. Baker Street from Jerry Rafferty, the 1978 song, $145,000 a year. What surprises me about that one is that Jerry Rafferty's making a ton of money, but the guy who played the saxophone on it is not. Well, Jerry Rafferty's dead. Well, okay, his estate. His estate is making money, but the guy that had that great sax riff. Which is really what the song is all about. If it wasn't for the saxophone player, Baker Street wouldn't be as popular as it is today. And that saxophone player made how much? 50 bucks. 50 bucks. It's just like the bass player on Lou Reed's Walk on the Wild Side. He was paid 30 bucks for that. Really? He he, He laid down his part in 20 minutes. 
and uh, he got about 30 bucks for it. The one that surprises me, and I, I really suppose it shouldn't surprise me, is the 1893 hit by the Hill Sisters. That is the all-time greatest money-generating song. It's Happy Birthday. Now, do you want to know the story about that? Please. They wrote the song for some kids in school. They were teachers, and it was uh, based on an older hit called uh, Good Morning to You. Mm -hmm. And over the years, the song has fallen into the possession and ownership of Warner Chapel Music, and they absolutely refuse to give it up. It should be in the public domain by now, but they keep somehow managing to renew the copyright on that. And uh, this is why when you go to a restaurant... And you have a little cake brought to your table and the wait staff comes around and sings to you. They they sing some made up song. Mm -hmm. They can't sing happy birthday because otherwise they would owe royalties on it. That's why when you uh, watch a movie or a TV show and and somebody has uh, a birthday, they sing for he's a jolly good fellow or something like that instead of happy birthday. So they don't have to pay royalties on it. You can also get away with it, if I understand, if you just sing the last half of the stanza. Happy birthday to you, which looks like an editing decision made at the cutting room floor level. But no, this was made at the legal level. Really? I didn't know that. Where did you get that from? Oh, Nora Ephron films tend to do that. They'll sing Happy Birthday, but the the guy always comes in at the last minute as they get to the very last sentence. Well, they might still have to pay, uh, you know, that's that's copyrighted music. Oh. Even though it's the, you know, the, the, the last uh, line of the song. I mean, that's still part of a copyrighted work. So I, I think they, they have to pay for it. Maybe they don't have to pay the full freight. Maybe because it's a Nora Ephron film and it's guaranteed to pull in billions of dollars. Absolutely not. No, 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 no. Public performance means they got to pay. No, I mean they could afford it. Oh, they could afford it. Oh, yeah, probably could. Date movies? They've got to pull in big bucks. Maybe that's it. But this is, okay, so so 30, okay, I got to look this up. Stand by, please. Prime example, the When Harry Met Sally film, total lifetime gross, $92.8 million. Okay, so if they wanted to, listen, if it was in the budget back then to create a soundtrack uh, and, and you would have to you'd put a certain amount of, of production money aside to pay for the music, uh, and if they wanted to do it, well, then they did it. And, and then, you know, this is negotiable too, right? So they, the, the producers of the film would go to Warner Chapel and say, hey, we want to use one, we want to use Happy Birthday in, in a scene. And they'll say, okay, uh, and it's going to cost you this much. And they'll say, well, we'll pay you this much. And that's probably how it works. Last week, I was making fun of you for your uh, participation in the Canadian version of Songza. You are going to be the head of curation. and I, I'm not going to be. I am. Well, at the time, you were going to be, were you not? Uh, I started on the 6th, really. So I was joking that it's going to be all Tom Cochran, Life is a Highway. And sure enough, this week, as we run down the top 10 best car songs of all time, it's on that list as number five. Oh, did I put that in the lineup? Oh, what an idiot. Okay, you know what? The- well, well, okay, okay. No, 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 no. In, in your defense, in your defense, you did uh, write the headline for this article on a Journal of Musical Things. We fall for another commercial masquerading as music news. Right. Now, the, the British are very good at this. The British put out lists all the time, and because they have so much media that needs to be fed, I mean, how many newspapers are there in London? Nine, ten? They pick up on this stuff all the time. 
So a company called Insurance.com, which is an insurance company, surveyed their members and came up with a list of the top 10 best driving songs and the top 10 worst driving songs. And then they put it out as a press release and everybody went, ooh, let's publish that because it's January and not much is happening before the Olympics. So, you know, we all fell for it. That's that's what happened. And, and I, you know, at least let's let's be honest. But but and again, this is hardly a scientific thing because what they've this is this is one company surveying uh, their customer pool, and it's only the customers that chose to respond. Are you implying people who choose to be responsible and get car insurance no, 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 no. are not the ones who ought to be deciding what qualifies as a best car song? I'm just saying that the people who chose to buy car insurance, who also chose to spend some money on the phone or online talking to their insurance company about the songs that they believe are the best driving songs, probably aren't a representative sample of the rest of humanity. Strangers Well, I suppose that explains why I don't think that um, it was the cool kids who made up this list, because number one on the list is Don't Stop Believing by Journey at 30%, which is fine. Well, no, no, it's not. What it's... surprised me was number nine, I think should have been number one, but only 14% agreed that Bruce Springsteen's Born to Run is the number one car driving song. <laughs> some math here and and we everything it totals up to way beyond 100 percent. so obviously what these people were given was a list of songs to choose from and then order them uh, and then the, the the votes were then weighted right so uh, you know so this is hardly again the only one that i think is accurate is the worst possible driving song is with 29 percent of the vote the baja men's who let the dogs out yeah i just, I just don't get that Yuck. But, uh, you know, why would anybody drive to number two either? We Are Never Ever Getting Back Together Again by Taylor Swift. Oh, come on. Chicks dig that song like there's no tomorrow. <sighs> Please. I w- I, that song comes on the radio. I want to drive into the nearest tree. Yes, but you have a Y chromosome. I, I understand. But this is, again... Can we move on? This is I should never have put this in the lineup. It's upsetting you that much, is it? It is. It is upsetting me because again, I got suckered into it, and so many other people got suckered into it. And now we're we're we're, we're saying that the worst driving song ever is "Who Let the Dogs Out" by the Baja Man, and we're saying it as if it is fact. We're saying that uh, "Don't Stop Believing" by Journey is the best driving song of all time, and we're saying that as fact. It's not. Stop it. You know what we'll do? Here's what we're going to do. We're going to go to geeksandbeats.com, and uh, on the uh, voting section, we are going to put the list of the top songs, and we want you to pick the top three <laughs> of, 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 the, of the list from this insurance company's uh, report. Okay, fine. And so we'll, we'll let our uh, technorati <laughs> decide. Go ahead. Knock yourself out. <laughs> go right ahead. I shouldn't have done this. I'm sorry. Own one of the craptastic mugs of the world's most popular podcast and support the show. You too can use the power of science to hold liquids, both hot or cold. Visit geeksandbeats.com today. There's now a church based on the teachings of Kanye West. This shows how far we've fallen as a civilization. Um, <laughs> it's called Ye. Um, 
He calls himself Yeezus, doesn't he? Yeah, Yeezus, yeah. So that now there's Yeezyanity. Should have seen this coming. I mean, the guy thinks he's a, a deity anyway. So Yeezyanity compla- proclaims itself to be an anonymous group who believes that the one who calls himself Yeezus is a divine being who has been sent by God to usher in a new age of humanity. Oh, the humanity. Oh, I know. And well, listen, if Kanye West is a god, if he is a deity, if he has divine powers, I stop the universe. I want to get off. What does that make Kim Kardashian then? Well, not the Virgin Mary. Um, <laughs> I shall give you my laws, and you shall take them unto the people. Yes, Lord. Instead of f- Ten Commandments, they have the five pillars. The Lord Jehovah has given unto you these 15. Ten Commandments for all to obey. Okay. You know, this stuff is tough to disagree with. All things created must be for the good of all. Okay, fine. I, I'm with that. Okay, no, no human being's right to express themselves must ever be repressed. Mm, okay. Okay, fine. Money is unnecessary except as a means of exchange. Isn't that exactly what money is? Well, it is, but I think it's also um, uh, used to, to, to get stuff. Yeah, but that's a means of exchange. You are exchanging your time that you put into your work in exchange for goods. Uh, okay. If it's a means of exchange, you're right. That's what it is. So I can use it for bribery. I can use it to have somebody killed. That, that would be a good? It's kind of a weird pillar. Or a service. That would be a service. Kind of like the Asimov's Three Laws of Robotics. I get it. Okay. Uh, man possesses the power to create everything he wants and needs. It's a bit sexist. Uh, and number five, all human suffering exists to stimulate the creative powers of man. Okay, I'm going to read that one again. All human suffering exists to stimulate the creative powers of man. So we have to suffer to create art. Listening to Kanye West is suffering enough. Yeah, okay. Uh, You're in a mood tonight, aren't you? I am. You know, I I have a headache uh, because there's a weather change coming on and the headache won't go away. And uh, because I got to go to Los Angeles, I spend all all weekend working and uh, I'm just I'm just I'm, I'm just grumpy. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. So then we probably shouldn't talk about the prospect of the end of net neutrality. Do you want to explain what net neutrality is for everybody? The basic premise behind net neutrality is that the bits, the ones and zeros that move across the internet should not be marginalized depending on what those ones and zeros represent. For example, um, you might be able to say, hey, uh, that looks like you're stealing music off the internet, so we're going to slow that down to the point where it's untenable. Uh, That's what they do with uh, torrenting and music uh, and video and things like that. So if you're trying to steal something off the internet, uh, you're internet service providers probably slowing it down to make it virtually impossible to to be worthwhile. And then on the other hand, the idea that if you go to Target.com, you'll have a nice speedy experience because Target paid the internet service provider to make that happen, whereas because Walmart did not, if you go to Walmart.com, you have a really sluggish, slow internet experience. Yes, that's that's exactly it. So once again, access goes to the people with the deep pockets or speedy access. And so that 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 really, really, really bugs me. And that that would have some serious repercussions for music, because, again, if you wanted to, you know, streaming music services, for example, they would be affected by it. 
you know, companies like iTunes would be effective. I'd although Apple could easily afford it. They, uh, uh, but then you know, if 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 we wanted to access what would essentially become a a premium service, we would pay for the service plus for the access to the premium service, just the access to the zeros and ones, and and that's not good. That's that is a huge huge drain on innovation. I, one of the things that had made the internet uh, explode so quickly since uh, the middle nineties was the fact that it was neutral. Everybody had equal access to the speed of the zeros and ones based on, you know, what you uh, what you paid for as far as uh, of, uh, to your ISP. But the idea is that it becomes tiered this way really bugs me. The reason why we're bringing this up is the New Yorker.com is reporting that the idea of net neutrality is pretty much now dead. Well, there was a weird ruling in the U.S. Uh, regarding the FCC, and, and, and I, I don't understand it entirely, uh, but basically it, it's it, – some sort of really circular logic that has got people wondering, well, what did the court actually say? Something like 90% of the world's internet traffic inevitably is rooted through the U.S.? That doesn't surprise me at all. It's the way they laid the intersea cables. Yeah, it's it's, it's the way it's – yeah. So uh, everything goes to the U.S. and – or almost everything. And, and regardless of, of, of what anybody else says about net neutrality, if the U.S. abandons that in favor of corporations and big business, we're screwed. Well, this is what's happened is that the U.S. Court of Appeals, the Federal Communications Commission, basically – dropped the ball in the courtroom on the issue of whether or not companies like Verizon and Comcast uh, can traffic shape, which is, again, the idea that, well, wait a minute, that's an email. It doesn't need to get there as fast as light. We can slow that one down and make way for streaming products like video and audio to go faster. So there there, there are some actual positive reasons to do this, but because Verizon and Comcast had pushed so strong on this, it now opens the door for them to be able to charge different speeds, not to you and me as end users, but to the companies that have a presence on the internet. Right. So the ISPs want to go after companies like Google, who say are huge drains on their bandwidth, uh, companies like Netflix, which represents something like 30 or 35 percent of all bandwidth in North America after 8 p.m. Um, and Amazon, another one. Um, so, it, you know, it's it's again, the whole the reason the Internet is such a place of innovation is because of access, equal access to speedy data. And the moment you start traffic shaping in this way, you're going to really screw things up moving forward. And it's, you know, the Internet is becoming less and less, well, less and less and less democratic, certainly way different than it was, uh, you know, 15 years ago. And uh, I just don't like the direction it's heading. All right, Mr. Cranky Pants, are you done now? Yeah, I am. So there's another one. Uh, NASA.gov's got this great history page of wake-up calls that they use to wake the astronauts up. Yeah. Did you look at it? I did. Rocket Good morning, Atlantis. This success on your mission, and a huge thank you to all the men and women at NASA who worked on the shuttle for the last three decades. Hey, good morning, Houston. Elton John, music legend. Wow, that is absolutely fantastic. We are absolutely honored that you took the time to uh, join the crew this morning and wake us up. We've invited the space station crew over here. We were all over uh, to listen to the occasion. You know, I think it just illustrates the far-reaching, uh, both uh, 
both legendary 30 years of shuttle flight and also the amount of people globally that have been affected by the shuttle program itself. Um, thank you so much, uh, Elton, for taking again the time to, to join us this morning. And it's great to be here, great to be in space. Atlantis Houston, we agree with you 100%. It's great to be with you working for another day. I, I don't understand a lot of them. Uh, they must be relevant specifically at the time, but like, why would you wake up um, the astronauts to my favorite things by the cast of The Sound of Music? I don't get that one. Elton John's Rocket Man, I do. Uh, Eli's Coming by Three Dog Night. Um, and then it gets weird again. Well, it does. Okay, but wait, wait, wait. Okay. So... The, the idea of waking astronauts up with music goes all the way back to Gemini 6 in 1965. Uh, Gemini, by the way. Gemini, sorry. G- Gemini 6, 1965. And uh, that was a 25-hour a, a mission. And so that was the first time I think that anybody actually slept up there. So they needed something to wake him up. So they played uh, Jack Jones. <laughs> uh, uh, what was it? Hello, Dolly. Uh, Jack Jones, the guy who sang the love boat theme. He, he, he has the distinction of, of being the first guy to wake up astronauts in, in, in orbit. And a, a certain protocol evolved over the years regarding these wake-up calls. And uh, you, it, the song could not, the song was between ground control and Major Tom quite literally. We'll come back to that in just a second. But it was between what was happening on the ground and, and the astronauts in space. They would actually uh, agree on what wake-up songs were going to be used during the mission before liftoff. And uh, the guy on the ground who was in charge of uh, selecting the music from everything uh, is the Capcom, Capsule Commander. You had to be very careful because you don't want to jar your astronauts awake with something like Rob Zombie. <laughs> <laughs> because that could be that could be that could be dangerous. Uh, there could be no commercial gain involved, so this had to be something that was just done for for fun or for for practical purposes. There could be no commercialization of it, and uh, it had to be reasonably suitable for work because you know the whole planet is listening, right? So uh, if you s- scroll down this document, which is rather long, they begin to list who the capsule commander is for that particular mission. And Chris Hadfield played a very big role in choosing the music. There you go. This is ground control to Major Tom. Was uh, he was musical with NASA as far back as STS eighty two 
in February of 1997. So Chris Hadfield, the first song that he played for the uh, uh, the astronauts was Canadian, Magic Carpet Ride by Steppenwolf. And then, he, you know, 10,000 Maniacs and Spin Doctor, Steve Winwood. He did the uh, U2 version of the Mission Impossible theme. He was quoted as saying uh, over at history.nasa.gov is as you want to get them going in the morning. You, you don't, they're groggy. You don't want to play a dirge or something uninspiring. So he, you know, he was uh, Shiny Happy People from R.E.M., uh, Dreams by the Cranberries. And if you look at the other songs that were chosen over the years, you know, the, he had the hippest playlist. <laughs> he was, it was cool. I, I like that. I just think it's a little weird that, you know, ground control to Major Tom would be one of them because that's really not a pro astronaut happy ending kind of story. Well, no, it's not. It's not um, because, of course, Major Tom dies. However, where they did use it, let me just find it here. It was used twice, but uh, the first time it was used was uh, shuttle mission number 78 uh, for Tom Hendricks, the mission commander, who was a major. Ah, okay. Well, that would explain a lot. That makes it there. That's why. Which makes it just that much creepier for the poor guy waking up to the prospect that maybe he's going to die today. Yeah, but, you know, the song came out in 1969. And it was it's it's that was the first time it was used, 1996. And the occasion that they chose to use it was when there was, in fact, a major tom floating in a tin can far above the world. Do you want to uh, do you want to shut up uh, schmooze? Can you do that? Is that possible? I'm going to go do that right now. Hang on. I'm back. Um, okay. See, here's our problem. We have we have we have bunnies oh. in the backyard, and uh, English bull terriers do not like rabbits. And uh, there is a fence that separates our front yard from our backyard, and the rabbit likes to sit in the front yard, staring down the schmooze, and she drives her nuts. <laughs> London, Bangkok, New York, Cincinnati. From the worldwide headquarters of Geeks and Beats magazine, this is a GNB News Update. So we uh, got a whole collection of tweets from uh, the Falarati over at uh, Geeks and Beats on the Twitter machine. Oh, did we? Okay. Yes. Uh, Scott Coates says uh, that uh, he's been enjoying the show while commuting in Vancouver. We had tweeted last week a promotion for the show asking, will Weezer fans buy Microsoft tablets after Microsoft hired them uh, to open up a show, a store rather, in downtown Toronto or uptown Toronto? And uh, Scott says, not a chance. Silly promotion all around. Mm. Yeah, I'm not really sure about that one. Yeah. Christine Wong uh, pointed out, did Alicia Keys fans buy Blackberries? <laughs> Hashtag probably not. Hashtag you're, you bet. Um, and, and she, uh, well, she's, she's, she's been fired or whatever. Yeah, she was fired. And I was surprised she wasn't fired after she tweeted uh, something unrelated to BlackBerry using an iPhone. I, I know. Well, and it was the first week that she was part of this organization. She actually, when she did an internal BlackBerry rah-rah um, session, apologized, saying that she was transitioning from the iPhone to the BlackBerry. And yes, the mistakes happen. But as I understand it, she not once but twice tweeted from a, an iPhone instead of the BlackBerry. And then, of course, she was fired, as you pointed out, just not too long ago, because clearly BlackBerry is going not consumer, they're going corporate, and corporations don't really give a rat's ass about Alicia Keys. No, no. We reported last week on a link to uh, find out what your blues name is. Mm-hmm. 
And so we got a few responses, uh, including uh, one response from uh, Joe DaCosta on Twitter saying that his blues name was Boney Gumbo Dupree. That's a good one. I think that's the best one out of all of them. That's a really good one. Yeah. So if you want to go to last week's program, uh, we did uh, put in the liner notes there, uh, the link if you want to find out not only what your blues name is, but also uh, what your porn name is and your... Wu-Tang Clan name. Wu-Tang Clan name. Did you ever... Did, did we get a Wu-Tang name for you? Do I look like the kind of guy who even knows what a Wu-Tang hang Clan on, is? No, no, hang on. We've got to do that. You're going to do that now? Uh, yeah. I'm, I'm curious because <laughs> you are about the least Wu-Tang guy I know. Starting to get a little offended by this. No, 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 no. You don't know. No, no. Frisch just said last week I was the whitest guy you knew. Well, you are. Okay, so Michael, dude, you are like number two and not that far off. I know. Oh, you're Phantom Warlock. I like that one. That's not bad. That's not bad at Phantom all. Phantom Warlock, and Warlock is spelled uh, W-O-R-L-O-C-K. We reported last week that uh, we dropped $73 on the Facebook <laughs> page ads. <laughs> Operative word, dropped. <laughs> yes. Of the 12 million potential viewers, we got 12,000 potential viewers and a single like. <laughs> Greg Cooper, who is a uh, GMB listener uh, and an interactive marketing director at Ignition Media, uh, reports back to us saying uh, he's been listening and he says he wouldn't call it a total fail. Although that's exactly what we did. Yeah, repeatedly. He said, people on Facebook really need to be told what to do. If you really want to increase likes on your page, you can't really promote a post. The campaign should be focusing on increasing likes, which totally changes the ad altogether. So he is encouraging us to turn to him for assistance. Uh huh. Now, we had said that we would not throw any more money down that rat hole until we had more money coming <laughs> in the door. Yes. And uh, courtesy of our geeksandbeats.com slash swag store, we, in fact, have about 42 additional dollars oh. in the kitty from people who bought the mugs. Well, well, thank you. Okay. Well, do you want to try it again? Shall we hire Greg pro bono? Well, let's hire Greg. You know, uh, Greg Cooper Consulting. Yes, absolutely. All right. So Greg Cooper Consulting is going to assist us this week. I will fire him off an email and make sure that we figure out how to do this right. What's his fee? He did say that he was willing to help. He says, quote, I'm here to help. You've helped me so much in my career. This is the least I can do. How on earth have you helped him in his career? He used to work for me. Oh, really? Yeah, years ago. He used to work in the promotions department. Oh, okay. Well, then there you go. Yeah, okay. Well, okay. So he's, yeah, all right, fine. Paying it forward. Okay. If you want to look at it that way, okay. Now, so here's what we want you to do. If you see our ad on your Facebook page, we want you to do something about it, whether it be share or let us know. Just just to give us a sense that somebody out there actually- How how much? $42? 42 bucks. (laughs) Okay. All right, please, please, please don't let this money go straight into Mark Zuckerberg's pocket. And, and if you want to put more money in our pocket, uh, or in not necessarily in Zucks, no, that doesn't go. It doesn't go into our pocket. It does not. No, it just goes to, to, to get it, keeping the show on the air. Um, what you do is you go to geeksandbeats.com/slash/donate, and we will make you a co-producer. Uh, however, if you would prefer to actually get something other than your name on the show and the ability to put this in a resume and the cover arts in high resolution suitable for printing and hanging in your pace, parents' basement, you can uh, go to geeksandbeats.com/slash/swag and. You can actually buy crap from us. Yeah, there you go. That might be the more effective way to go about uh, it. Buy crap from us, yes. Geeks and Beats update on uh, our Consumer Electronics Show report that we had done. We were live from the floor in Las Vegas, and then we talked about it the week after as well. I had come across this fantastic article, which I wish I had read while we were down at CES. Headline, 
Booth babes are bad for business. You know what? I meant to ask you about booth babes. Now, there's been much controversy about having having them uh, at CES. Did you see any? I have to tell you, there were very few actual booth babes done up in that auto show slash video game slash comic con look. Yeah. There were a few that were there, but what I had noticed was that the um, drop-dead gorgeous women who clearly would not have anything to do with you outside of being a booth babe were dressed far more modestly than I had seen in previous years. And this brings us to the TechCrunch.com article written by Spencer Chen, who said that in his software company, when they went to trade shows, at one point he managed to get two booths, one booth on one side, one booth on the other side. He staffed one with booth babes, scantily clad, and the other with, quote, grandmothers. And when he says grandmothers, he literally means that that, that one of the women he hired through this company that does this sort of thing um, brought in a woman who actually was a grandmother. And the criteria for the grandmothers was that they had to have strong social skills and an understanding of software. And so what he found out was that the low-level nerds will talk to the booth babes, but they're not the decision makers at a trade show. The decision makers are the guys in the suits and ties, and they know that the scantily clad women don't know anything about the product, so they ignore them. Hmm. Then there's that mush, mushy middle ground of people like you and me who are simply too scared to talk to a really attractive woman in the first place, so you don't go into the booth. He found that the leads he got, sales leads he got, were by far and away greater with the grandmothers than the booth babes. Wasn't it last year, year before there were some there were some booth babes who were just in body paint? Oh, uh, excuse me. Yeah, they 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 were. What what's the uh, the character? Was this at the Consumer Electronics yeah, yeah, Show? Because yeah. I missed yeah, that. It's, it's, I remember something. It was a year or two ago. And what's the James Cameron movie um, Avatar? They were just like the they were body painted up like uh, like them. You know what? Again, this comes back to what Spencer Chen was Chen was pointing out, which is if you are self conscious or insecure about talking to someone in your booth, chances are you're not going to be talking to that person anyway, and therefore you're not going to be interested in the product. You're not going to to be a sales lead. You're not going to be a closer type scenario. To CES 2013, intentionally hired four women with minimum clothing. The fourth woman's body was accidentally painted with different was ac accidentally painted with different motives? How do you accidentally paint a woman? Do, do they mean motifs? What, what, what is your source? Bubbleloos. <laughs> yeah, okay. I've, ne I've never heard of Bubbleloos. I'm sure Edward R. Murrow is rolling over in his grave. B-U-B-B-L-E-W-S dot com. So I was watching the other night America's Funniest Home Videos. Did you know that's still on the air? I, you know, I stumble across it occasionally. Is it, is it on a network? You wonder why it's still on the air, considering YouTube is basically America's Funniest Home Videos. You don't need someone to curate that kind of content. You just type blooper in, and away you go. Yeah. Uh, I found myself in that sort of cord-cutting world. Like I haven't cut my cable cord yet, but um, I thought, you know what? If I had, what would I do? And I found myself on YouTube on the BuzzFeed video channel. Yeah. And you just hit play and you sit back on my big screen TV and it's 
minute and a half, two minute long little bits about a variety of different subjects and all that kind of stuff. It was, it was actually quite fascinating. And because it's laid out on the channel that when one ends, the next one begins, I sat there, hand to God, for about 40 minutes watching these videos. And I thought, this is what the mainstream media needs to worry about, is guys like me sitting here choosing not to watch traditional television. And I found myself watching the nine most unexpected animal sounds. All right. I'm listening. So I'm going to play for you the nine most unexpected animal sounds, and you have to guess what the animals are. Okay, go. And the reason why I bring up the America's Funniest Home Videos is that this is, quote, in association with AVF. So America's Funniest Home Videos is still alive, and they've recognized that the Internet exists now and that if they're going to survive, they need to be on that screen as well. So all of the videos that were used in this BuzzFeed video montage came from AVF. Well, I'm sure they get more than they can use for the TV show, so okay. All right. So I'm going to play these for you, and you have to guess what these animals are. Are you ready? I'm, I'm all set. I can't wait. Number one. What animal was that? Very white. I don't know. <laughs> that was a horse farting with its mouth. <sighs> the next one is labeled the happy giggle. What animal is making this sound? I am a cat. Correct, a cat. Ah, okay, okay. Uh, number three is labeled the oh yeah. <laughs> I have no idea. What is that? That is a turtle making love to another turtle. A turtle. <laughs> Do that again. I want to hear that again. <laughs> okay. See, I'm not so grumpy now. The no. <laughs> uh, a goat, maybe? That would be a seal. Okay. The next one's labeled the affectionate yelp. I love you. <laughs> that's a dog. That is correct. Yeah, so no, I, I've heard these these talking dogs. Yeah, that's a good one. This one is the grumpy growl. <laughs> Those would be cats. Kanye West. <laughs> I saw <laughs> somebody actually took that, sampled it, and put it in a Taylor Swift song. <laughs> That's hilarious. It was funny. Catch all new episodes of Geeks and Beats Wednesdays on iTunes. And watch for Geeks and Beats magazine on a newsstand near you. To be part of next week's show, call area code 323-319-NERD. Follow the stories on Twitter or Facebook and get your dose of Geeks and Beats anytime at geeksandbeats.com. The Geeks and Beats podcast would like to thank the National Science Foundation.